Hey everybody, welcome to episode 252 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, and I'm coming to you with a very practical episode today. We're going to be talking about tips for London, Chicago, and Boston with those races immediately on our doorstep. First, congratulations to all of those who ran Berlin. We had some rogues there from Austin. We had some rogues there from our virtual community. And the results were strong all around, so very proud of that group. And also happy for everyone who got to toe the line in Berlin. It was great to see real live racing happening, especially at that scale in Germany. So, so good. So good to see. Fun to watch. And now it's your turn for those doing London, Chicago and Boston. So what I'm going to do in this episode is break down my very practical tips, both generally on what you might consider in approaching a big marathon like this. And then I'm going to go course by course through each of those three courses and give you my more specific tips on individual course notes, as well as strategy to think about. We'll also talk a little bit about the weather forecast for each one and how that might affect your races. And so we're going to dig in to those three and just try to really give you practical tips. So this would be one to listen to as you make your final plans or to pass on to a friend who might be doing one of those races. So let's break it down, starting with some general thoughts as we get into major marathon season. Some general things to think about that apply to these races, that but also might apply to any large marathon in the coming weeks or months. First of all, as you approach these races, I want to remind you to reflect on your purpose for the day and what you're trying to accomplish above and beyond a specific time goal. What does this race mean to you? And hone that down into some words, phrases, mantras that you can put to work on race day. So don't neglect that work. But the specifics I'm going to be talking about today are more practical about your preparation And as we dig into it, the first detail I want to cover is travel and logistics. I've talked in a recent episode about the taper and how to manage the taper. But one thing to consider as you finish your final week of taper right during that race week is how do your runs fit together around your travel? How do your runs fit together around your travel? And if you're traveling to London, Chicago, or Boston, then... For many of you, likely that means a fairly long trip, either by plane or by road if you're driving. So you're going to be sitting a lot in transit to one of these big races, which can be kryptonite for your legs when it comes to feeling sharp and fresh for race day. So one of the things that I recommend around planning around your travel and your running schedule during that week is to try to get in as many runs as reasonably possible after you travel after you travel. Obviously, you have to factor in scheduling. So if you're getting in really late, don't obviously run after a really late flight. I personally arrived to Boston on Friday evening about 10 p.m. There's no way I'm going to go running after that. But I am structuring my week in a way that allows me to get in a Saturday and Sunday shakeout run while there so that I can flush out the stagnation in the legs on two different runs. So I'll be doing a short run Saturday and a shakeout run on Sunday. 
I always, always recommend a run the day before that might simply be 20 to 30 minutes in length with a few strides. But beyond that, I like to get in as many runs as you can after travel. And so if you're flying out on a day and you have time to run when you arrive, try to schedule your run after you land so that you can start to work out some of that sitting from the plane or the car. And then again, try to run as many days as you can while there to keep the legs fresh, which could mean that you shift your days off during that week to a day that's prior to your travel. So for me, I typically don't run on Sundays. I'm a six day a week runner, don't run Sundays typically, but for a Monday race, I'm gonna be running on Sunday as my final shakeout run, which means that I'll take a day off prior to my travel to Boston in order to make sure that my legs are fresh and I've got that opportunity to get as many shakeouts once I land as possible. So again, be reasonable about it. Don't do anything crazy like run super late after you arrive, but to the extent possible, get in as many runs as you can consistent with your prior routine after you land on location. That helps get that blood flowing so that the legs can be sharp and fresh going into race day. Again, these are short, easy shakeout runs, but it's really important to try to skew them to post-travel if at all possible. Don't bend over backwards for that, but do try to accommodate that rule if you can. So think about your travel and how your runs fit together during those final few days so that you can get in those pre-run shakeouts. Second tip I have, general tip, that may be counter-cultural in the running community is that I do not recommend carbo-loading. I do not recommend carbo-loading, especially if it means doing something that you're not used to. Carbo-loading is a bit of... Has some, has some mythology, I should say, around it. And there are protocols that, that science tells us work when it, when it comes to carbo-loading. But it requires a very significant amount of carbohydrates in the days leading up to the race to the point where you have to overdo it significantly over multiple days prior to your race in order for that to have scientifically proven benefit. Or alternatively, there's another protocol where you actually reduce carbs in the week before and then add them back right before the race. And so it, it requires this off and then on again protocol that can be really bizarre and disruptive. So unless you know exactly what you're doing and unless you're find, following a scientific protocol around carbo-loading, those are the only scenarios where it will work. If you're just thinking about having a big meal the night before, then you want to jettison that concept of carbo-loading from your mind altogether and simply focus on eating normal foods that you've had in training prior to long runs that you typically eat that you know won't mess with your stomach that will give you a solid, balanced, filling meal the night before your race. Nothing new. Nothing crazy. You don't have to go overboard on pasta. You don't have to go overboard on rice unless that is something that you're used to doing. But stick with what you know. Discard the concept of carbo loading because what's most important is that you get foods that you're used to, that you know will work 
that won't mess with your stomach so that you can wake up feeling normal and ready to go. So discard that idea of carboloading unless you're following a very specific protocol that lasts several days prior to your race where you know exactly what you're doing and have tried it before. So otherwise, discard the concept of carboloading and just eat normal foods that you're used to that you would eat prior to any long run that you know won't mess with you. So that's the second point to drive home. Third point, when we're talking about, I want to talk about weather and I'll talk about this in the context of each race and its current forecast as we go as well. But you do have to account for weather when it comes to your race planning. I've mentioned in recent episodes that you want to create a race plan that ignores weather, but then obviously at some point you have to factor it in. And typically what I will do is I like to look at the forecast a long way out just to start seeing what it might look like, but then I won't actually make any adjustments for weather until two or three days out once I'm pretty certain about that forecast. And if you're someone where the weather is going to drive you crazy or looking at the forecast will drive you crazy, just ignore it. Maybe even delete the weather app from your phone if it's going to drive you crazy. Personally, for me, I find comfort in looking at it, whether or not it tells me something good, because it just it gives me a way to start thinking about how I might adjust based on how the forecast is moving around. But I won't lock that change in until two or three days prior once we have a more certain forecast because especially in all of these cities, things can change on a moment's notice from a forecast perspective. And so, yeah, you can look at it early. You can consider what it might mean about your race, but don't make changes or adjust for weather until you get to basically right before race weekend itself. So that's my third general point. My fourth general point that, are, that applies to all of these races and will also apply to many big major fall races is that you have to think about the crowds. You have to think about managing the crowds and the potential implications for that on your race. Now, it might be a little bit different this year with the pandemic and the spacing that's going to be happening at the start lines and the fact that in races like Boston, there won't be a single mass start or even mass wave starts. They're going to just let us get off the bus, walk to the start line and go. So, so it might be a little bit less congested, but likely you're still going to have congestion at all of these races and you have to think about that and factor it into your early planning. A lot of people get really worried and nervous about the crowds, but I think in many ways they are a gift to you if you channel it in the right ways because because of that early congestion what you want to do is just let the cl- let the crowds slow you down let the crowds slow you down do not lose and waste energy bobbing and weaving in the early miles because it's only going to cost you energy and by the way add to your distance that you're going to need later in the race. So find your spot in the crowd, settle in, don't bob and weave, stay behind people, let naturally the the crowd slow you down, especially in that first mile. And then once you get to that first mile marker, you can do a checkpoint on where you are and then make some adjustments accordingly. But never, ever 
fight the crowds or do anything crazy that requires significant weaving because that will just simply cost you energy that you're going to need later in the race. The other thing to consider related to crowds is how the crowds might impact the early parts of the course depending on the turns. And you have in London some early turns, in Chicago some early turns. Fortunately in Boston it's a straight shot out. But you just need to be cognizant of how the crowds might be affecting you in those early in those early turns so that you don't get hemmed into a corner. In general, we want to run the tangents on a race, but probably not early in a big crowded race. You, you want to avoid running those tight tangents to stay out of the corners because when you get into those corners on a tight turn, you might be hemmed in by the crowds and that could impede you. So early in big races, I like to stay more in the middle of the course because that will allow me more freedom of movement than if I try to take that really tight tangent. So that's just something to think about early in all of these races is letting the crowd slow you down, embracing what that means because it means you're saving energy for later, and then just thinking about how the crowds might affect you on some of those early turns. The fifth thing to think about here would be your start line maps and finish line maps for that matter, but particularly the start line maps, you want to study it. You want to know what it looks like, where you're getting in, where the different components of the start line might be, including gear check, including those porta potties, including where you need to be lining up to head into your wave or your start corral. All of those things you want to have a general sense for before you show up that morning. So you don't have to do any crazy memorization of it, but just have a general idea of how things will be oriented once you get there so that you aren't finding yourself out of place, finding yourself looking for something when you could already know where it might be, which might waste time and energy. And so just have a general sense for what that start location might look like and in Boston, it's going to have two forms. You're going to have the location where you get on the bus, and then you're going to have the location in Hopkinton once you arrive, and then that, there's actually close to a mile walk through Hopkinton to get to the start line once you arrive. And so you want to understand those details and how they apply in your particular race so that, again, you're not left searching once you actually get to race day. So know your start maps. Then the last point I'll make, which generally applies across the board in any race, but especially these three, is that you want to bring to bear a strategy that allows you to start smart and finish strong. Start smart, finish strong. That should be a mantra if you don't have one already. So start smart, finish strong. You want to start conservatively, save energy, and then apply that energy late in the race for a strong finish. That's what success looks like in an optimized marathon. And it's not easy to do in a big race, not easy to do in some of these races with challenging courses like Boston, but it is possible if you keep that message in mind throughout and execute a plan accordingly. So don't forget overarching strategy concept, start smart, finish strong. Okay, so those are my general thoughts as it relates to prepping for these races. Let's dig into each one in turn, starting with London coming up this weekend. 
And for each of these, I'm going to cover sort of three general categories. We're going to talk about logistics and course considerations. We're going to talk about strategy and how you might approach each race from a pacing perspective. And then we're going to talk about weather and the potential impact of that based on current forecasts. And again, for London, I'm recording this on a Wednesday before the race. It probably could be pretty dialed in. But for Chicago and Boston, it might change. And in fact, it probably will change. And so I'm just going to give you what it's showing now and then just some considerations to think about if that plays out. And I'll give you considerations for how you might think about it otherwise as well if things shift. But let's go to London. Let's talk logistics and course considerations. First of all, one thing to consider, and this applies to Boston as well, is that London actually has the latest start time of the three. Usually Boston's later, but they've moved their start start up due to the pandemic. But here in London, you're going to be starting at 10.10 a.m. or later. The start line appears to be open between 10, 10 a.m. and 11 a.m., depending on your wave or your corral there in London. You also have three different start lines there. But you have to factor in that late start, which obviously that includes the logistics of that and how you get there. But more than that, and probably the most important part of that, that applies to Boston as well, is you also need to be thinking about fueling and hydration associated with that later start. Chicago is simply simple. It starts at between 7.30 and 8.35. And so that fills that fits into a normal window of get up, eat breakfast, go race, no big deal. But London and Boston, London 10.10 start to 11, Boston 9 a.m. to 11.30, you have to factor in that later start. And so what does that mean from a fueling standpoint? What it means for me, if I'm managing a race with a late start, is that I will wake up at a relatively early slash normal time for getting up for a race and have a relatively normal breakfast that I would eat before a long run. And so that could look like anywhere from two to 400 calories of something really simple, basic, that's going to be easily digestible that isn't going to mess with my stomach that I know I've tried before running and had success with. That could be a bagel. That could be toast with peanut butter. That could be banana and some fruit with some other things. That could be, in my case, dry cereal is something that I will do in advance of a race like this. So a relatively normal pre-race breakfast when you wake up. But then you have to factor in some fueling and hydration between that point and race start. And so for me in Boston, or if I was in London, I'd be carrying with me some pre-race hydration with electrolytes, likely some noon or scratch mixed into a bottle that I would sip on between breakfast and my start time, and then some sort of small snack that I can graze on between breakfast and that start time as well. And so again, for me, that would look like some dry cereal that I could just simply eat small handfuls of between the time I had breakfast and then while I might be on the bus and heading out to Boston so that I can continue to get some calories in throughout. I'll also bring my UCAN with me, which is my pre-race fueling routine. 
But beyond that, you want to just make sure you're getting some sort of calories in small chunks between breakfast and that starting time. And then also some sort of hydration with electrolytes during that same window as well. Again, not big amounts of it. I don't want you to chug anything or drink lots of anything, but I'm just talking about little sips, little bites to keep the system working and moving between when you have breakfast and when you go to the race so that you have some fueling so that you don't end up in a situation at 1 or 2 p.m. in the in the race where you actually might bonk. It's happened to me in Boston and happened to be in my first Boston actually when there was a noon start completely bonked in that race because I mismanaged my nutrition between breakfast and the start time and so that's what I'm trying to help you avoid here is just think about the practical reality of that time between breakfast and your start experience again you don't have to have a bunch of food in that window but some small bites of something as well as some hydration to make sure you're keeping the system working and keeping the system fueled and ready for when the gun goes off. And then, of course, make sure you have your in-run nutrition all ready to go. And you can then execute that upon your normal routine once you start the race. So that's something to consider at, at London and then Boston, of course, the late start and how that might affect you. Another thing to consider at London is that it is a course that has a lot of turns in it. And the turns kind of come in clusters where you will have little windows where there are a couple of sharper turns in short duration. And so on this course in London, you'll have turns around mile three. You're going to have more turns between six and seven, between nine and 10, between 18 and 19. And then around 21 before things start to straighten out towards the end. But there's just a lot of turns on the course and they tend to be clustered in small little sections where you're going to have multiple turns within a short period of time. And so that's one thing just to be aware of. Again, early on, you want to try to stay in the middle of the course so that you're not fighting the crowds around those turns. But then as the race progresses, after that mile seven or eight point, you should be able to start taking the tangents and taking the turns more directly to save time and ultimately distance on your race. And so be cognizant of that as the race progresses in London, especially in those windows where you've got multiple turns within a short period of time. So just be aware of it. Think about it in the context of the course map. Visualize it as you visualize your race about how you're going to manage those turns because it's going to matter. It's going to matter not only in terms of saving energy, but also saving distance so that you're not running 26.9 or 27 miles, which can happen on some of these courses if you're not careful. So that's another logistical element to consider is manage those turns in London, especially in those clusters. Another thing to look at is that there is a downhill The course in London is relatively flat, but there is a downhill section around mile three. And you just want to be careful there. As I always say, start smart, finish strong. But you have to be careful when that start has some downhills in it. Boston has the same thing in mile one. And you have to be careful there 
to not overdo it, not get greedy, not let that downhill suck you into something that's going to be too fast. So just be cautious there in London. It's not a big, massive downhill. Boston's downhills are much more pronounced, but it could be something that subtly sucks you into a pace that's too fast, too early, and you want to avoid that. So just be cognizant of that. Let gravity do its jobs. Just save energy in that mile that you can then use later. So be cautious of that downhill. After that, there are some gentle ups and downs in London, but nothing too crazy. It's a relatively flat course after that. Not much to think about otherwise in terms of how that course plays out other than that mile three downhill and then the turns. Next, when it comes to strategy, because it's a simple course and other than that downhill section in London, in, in mile three, it's pretty flat as I said. Because it's a simple course, you can treat London and Chicago essentially the same way from a strategy standpoint, which is that you want to start about 30 seconds slower than your target marathon time. Work down over the first three or five, four miles gradually to that target time. Hold that time for mile four or five until 21 and then try to progress after 21 to the finish picking it up just a little bit as you go each mile with hopes that you can finish those final few miles the fastest of your race if you do conserve energy early and save something for later so that's the general strategy that's going to be applied in london and chicago and the trick is going to be, especially in London, just being conservative enough early with the crowds and energy. And then, with, of course, with that downhill at mile three. So that's my, my general strategy for London. Pretty straightforward. Let's talk about weather for London because we're only a handful of days out. It's going to be time to lock it in. Right now, the, the temperatures look decent. Typically, I like to see marathons in the 45 to 50 degree range at the start. So just under 50 at the start is I would is what I would consider optimal. If you're between 51 and 55, that's still good, but starts to maybe have you think about the weather a little bit. And anything north of 55, you want to start to consider adjusting for weather. In London, the overnight lows on Sunday morning will be 51 degrees Fahrenheit with a high right now of 61. Again, pretty good temperatures. It does look overcast as well with 60% chance of rain out there, which I don't necessarily consider a bad thing. The tricky part of the current forecast is that there do appear to be 22 mile per hour winds with gusts up to 40 mile per hour winds potential on course. And those winds will be coming from the southwest. The challenge of that is that the course actually moved from east to west in London. You finish at a different place that you start. And so there will be sections that 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 require you to run straight into the wind. And that's probably the biggest weather consideration that I worry about for London at the moment. Temps look to be pretty good. I think from a temperature standpoint, you're probably okay to stay on your target pace. But the area that I worry about is that wind and will those gusts of winds potentially affect you and that's just something you need to be aware of the course actually starts by running northeast and so the wind in that case will actually be at your back potentially at the start but 
then there will be sections where it will hit you potentially head on. And so in those situations, you want to be very cautious in the first 21 miles of not fighting the wind and of potentially ducking into a group where you can draft. It'll be better to stay behind people and not face the wind on your own if you can potentially arrange that. And so you want to tuck in, stay conservative in those windy sections and try to save energy for later when it's coming directly into your face. Draft as much as you can. If you do end up facing the wind alone, just don't fight it until after 21 where you can start to progress. But before that, stay conservative into the wind and draft as much as you can. And just know that those sections of the course are going to be a little bit slower than your target time, potentially by anywhere from 10 to 20 seconds per mile. And that's okay. Better for you to be conservative into the wind than fight the wind and pay for it later. So that's the big concern for me with London potentially good temperatures, but we've got to watch that wind and hopefully that forecast will shift on the wind before race day itself. Okay, next let's jump into Chicago. Let's jump into Chicago. We'll talk about, again, logistics course considerations, strategy, and then weather. From a logistics and course consideration standpoint, the first thing we have to talk about the elephant in the room as it relates to Chicago is that most likely your GPS is not going to be useful for you at the beginning of the race at all. You're going to get completely inaccurate readings because of the tall buildings in downtown Chicago. And you also go into a tunnel within the first mile that lasts for about a quarter mile where you're going to be literally under concrete. You'll be underground essentially And that's going to cause your watch to go haywire. And there will be people that freak out about it. And so you need to be aware of it and then just have some sort of strategy to around it in order to understand what pace you might be going. My best advice is to ignore the GPS pace on your watch for the first four to five miles at least. It might take longer than that to actually sync up with a satellite in Chicago but ignore the GPS and instead split your watch at the mile markers with the lap button so that you know exactly how fast you're running and then adjust accordingly. So you're going to have to use the information on the course to actually get a reading on how fast you're going. So ignore the GPS, at least what it says in terms of pace per mile for the first four or five miles. Split your watch manually so that you know exactly what your pace is, and then use that as a gauge to adjust to your target paces. I've also actually at times turned off my GPS in a race like this when I know it's not going to be useful for me because it will just be giving you all sorts of crazy readings that might cause you to to mentally have some struggles. And if that's you, if you know that seeing some random crazy completely wrong pace on your watch is going to throw you off, then you can actually go into your settings on your GPS and simply turn off the GPS function and then split your watch manually on the course. There's mile markers at every mile. If you see those, hit the lap button, then that will tell you exactly how fast you run. You have run for that last mile and you don't need the GPS to tell you that. In fact, in the old school days when I had a Timex Ironman watch, that's how I did it. And I remember being very 
excited when I got a watch that had more than 26 laps on it because then I knew I could actually track all the data in my marathons at the time. And so there, there is a history here of doing this the old-fashioned way, and you have to embrace that in Chicago because otherwise you're going to get some readings that are wrong, which are going to cause you to freak out or maybe do something crazy from a pace perspective that will disrupt your race plan. And so know that about Chicago and then have a plan to address it. Another note for Chicago, same with London, is you have some turns to consider, especially in the early part of the race. And I encourage people to study that early part of the race and memorize the turns to some degree so you know exactly what's coming. And it's actually pretty easy in Chicago. The first four turns are simply left, left, right, right, left, left, right, right. So if you have that in your head, you know exactly what's coming. And again, just like London, you want to consider early in the race, staying away from those tight corners and choosing the middle of the road so that you don't get hemmed in or boxed in going around those corners. After that, there's a line on the course that actually indicates the tangent. So you can follow that blue line after that to help run the shortest distance. But don't do that for the first three to four miles when you're managing those tight turns because you're going to have a bunch of people fighting for that line. The crowd's going to be a little bit crazy and you will get hemmed in or slowed down on the turns if you try to run the tangents early. So let that go early on and simply embrace going a little bit wider so that you can avoid having to slow down in the context of those turns. Another note with Chicago is that it is the flattest world major. It is pancake flat. There are a couple of overpasses in the mile 18 to 20 range that are negligible. And then there's one hill on Roosevelt, which is about a half mile from the finish, maybe just maybe just under that. And it's a hill that you wouldn't even think about if you're running it on an easy run, but is really, really challenging when it comes at about mile 26 of this race. But otherwise, the race is pancake flat, which is good from a pacing perspective because it makes it really easy to dial in. But one thing that it does do to you is that it causes you to use the same muscles the whole race. And that will actually potentially cause you to have more recovery after because those same muscles are going to be used the whole time versus in other hilly races, you might engage some different muscles at different times. And what that means for me in Chicago is that you want to try to disrupt that that fatigue a little bit by changing up your cadence and your rhythm periodically throughout the race. What I like to pe- for people to think about is just maybe every other water stop, simply pick up your knees a little bit more, increase your cadence a little bit more, not for more than five to 10 seconds, a really short window of time, but do something to change your stride ever so subtly, approximately every couple of miles, just to give you a little bit different stimulus to try to forego some of that fatigue from using the, the same muscles the whole time. So that's something to think about in Chicago. That's something to think about on any other really flat course like Houston is you just want to change up your stride, your cadence ever so slightly for 10 to 15 seconds every two to three miles in order to get a different stimulus. 
that will help delay fatigue late in the race. It will also help you with the post-race recovery. So those are logistics and course considerations. Let's talk about strategy. Again, like London, it's really simple, probably even simpler than London because you don't have that downhill at mile three. It's it's really just pancake flat and you truly can dial into a rhythm. And so this is a simple three section course strategy. Again, start about 30 seconds, slow in the first mile, work down over the first three to four miles in 10 second or so increments per mile and then hold from four or five till about 21 hold that pace as consistently as you can and again because that course is super flat it'll be easy to stay within a fairly tight range as you go and then after 21 but not before that start to consider picking it up in five to ten second per mile increments as you go to the finish and after you get past 24 all bets are off empty the tank all the way to the line that is our general strategy for Chicago. It's pretty easy to execute once you find that rhythm, but because again, because that GPS won't be useful to you early, you're going to have to rely on your senses and the mile markers to tell you what to do or to help inform that pace. And you just want to remind you that all of your senses are going to be off as it relates to pace because of the energy of the day, the, the chaos of the moment and the adrenaline pumping through your brains. And so as you get going in this race, I want you to think about starting slow and then slow down some more. If you miss slow in that first mile, then that is something to celebrate. If you miss slow in that first mile, meaning you're maybe 45 seconds slower per mile than your target pace, if you miss like that, then that is not something to be mad about. It is something to celebrate because it means you didn't start too fast. And then you can use that starting point as your anchor and then start to work down from there. So again, start smart, finish strong. It applies in Chicago just like any other race. Okay, weather. Let's go to weather. Again, this is based on current forecast, which is about 10 days out at this point. But this has been holding pretty steady for the last week or so as I've been monitoring it. And right now it's showing overnight lows of 59 with highs of 72 and partly cloudy. So it's looking to be a little bit warm on race day. It's looking to be a little bit warm on race day. These are suboptimal marathon conditions because you're likely going to be 59 to 60 at the start. And if this is the way it plays out, then I want you to know you can't fight physics and chemistry. Heat is a problem when it comes to chemical reactions like respiration. Heat also creates friction in your muscles and in how your body moves. That's going to affect you. Unfortunately, we just can't get around that. And so if you have a target time and the weather plays out like this, then what I typically recommend is that you add 10 seconds per mile or approximately five minutes of target marathon time to your target paces across the board at least until 21. After 21, all bets are off. You can go for it. But before 21, if the weather holds, add 10 seconds per mile or five minutes of total marathon time to what you think you, you could run in good conditions. And then for every five second or five degrees north of that, you've got to add another 10 seconds. 
So 60 degrees is 10 seconds, 65 would be 20 seconds, 70 would be 30 seconds, and so on. Unfortunately, that's just the way it works because of chemistry and physics. And you can still run a beautiful race in spite of all of that, but you do have to factor in the temperatures. Now, question: the next question I'm sure from you will be, well, what would I want that forecast to show in order to stay on target with my plan? And for me, I would want to see it as a start temperature of 55 or cooler in order to consider staying on my target plan and not adjusting. But if it's north of 55, add the 10 seconds, be conservative early. After 21, you can throw that out the window and just run based on how you feel, but it's going to affect you. So please account for that. That's Chicago. Let's talk about Boston. So logistics and course considerations. First of all, I, as I noted with London, just consider that late start and how that affects you from a nutrition and hydration standpoint. And try to get some, some a small snack to graze on and some hydration to carry with you out there on the bus so that you can keep the fuel going as you prep for the start line. We also have to consider from a course perspective the downhills. The downhills in Boston are the kryptonite of this course. It's a net downhill course, yes, but the way those downhills show up and because of the rolling hills in Newton, it becomes very difficult to execute a fast and beautiful race on this course. That's just the way it is, especially if you're new to it. And so you, the biggest course thing to note is those downhills. And there are two to really note, especially. One is the first downhill. In mile one, once you hit go, you're straight downhill. And this is a, a downhill that's steep enough that typically requires you to adjust your form in order to be comfortable on it. And either if you're good at it, get really quick with those feet, increase your turnover and lean it over your feet so that you can keep a, a rhythm on the downhill. Or if you're not good at that, then you're going to find yourself wanting to lean back and break with those quads. And that eccentric loading of the quads is what makes Boston so tough. And so you want to avoid that as much as possible by being conservative in that first mile. And we'll talk about how that applies to strategy in a second. The second big course downhill challenge is the one between 15 and 16 as you approach Newton. It's another steep downhill. It's actually quite long at least half mile in length and it's it's a hill that is easier to run it's actually one that's not quite as steep as that hill in mile one that allows you to actually get into a pretty nice rhythm on it but it is so tempting to go fast there and to then carry that momentum into newton in a way that's going to cause you to burn too much energy up the uphills in newton and there's four climbs in newton and you have to be cautious on them. But if you fly down that downhill between 15 and 16 and then think you can carry that momentum into Newton and get greedy in Newton, then that is a booby trap that will catch you. So you have to be very careful there between 15 and 16. Use that mile as an opportunity to essentially recover before Newton. Let gravity do its thing. Keep the rhythm smooth. Yes, you may go a little bit faster in that mile than the previous mile, but it shouldn't be dramatic. 
and it really should be an opportunity to conserve energy and basically prep for the work you're going to have to do through those Newton Hills. So be careful of the downhills in Boston. And then, by the way, after Heartbreak Hill, you've got a downhill between 21 and 23 that you can take advantage of. That once you get past that 21 point after you get through Heartbreak, that's when you can turn turn it on and go. But But just know that those downhills in Boston are the big booby traps of the race. It's not the climbing that will get you. It's those downhills if you take them too fast, if you get greedy on them. So that's something to consider from a course perspective. Another thing to consider here with this race because of the wave start is then they're opening the start line at 9. You're going to be getting on the buses between 7.15 and 9.45. And once you get to Hopkinton, you're going to be able to walk through the city there, which is about a mile, by the way. Another thing to be prepared for and go to the start line and just go. And it's going to be a rolling start. There won't be any specific wave starts. It's going to be something where you can just get off, walk, and go, which is, I think is great. But it's just something to consider about how that start fits together for you and make sure you don't burn too much energy being stressed and worried about how that's going to play out. So try to be as mellow as possible as you get on the bus as you roll through, walk through Hopkinton to the start line, and then, of course, as you get going. Let's talk about strategy in Boston. Let's talk about strategy in Boston. One thing I want to speak to first is to that first-time Boston runner, that first-time Boston runner. My goal for you as a first-time Boston runner, more than anything else, is to experience Boston in a way that that causes you to fall in love with the tradition of it, fall in love with the history of it, to really be in awe of the overall experience. And there is a risk if you get greedy with your time in Boston that you will hate it. I, for one, can tell you that my first Boston was a disaster. As I mentioned, that's when the race started at noon. I was unprepared for that time lag between my breakfast and the race itself. So I ended up bonking royally in Boston on my first experience and pretty much zombie cruising through the last six miles of that race in a way that I don't really remember. And I hated it. Honestly, I hated it. I got done with that race and I hated it because I I got too greedy, not only during the race itself, I also mismanaged the logistics of the fueling and it was a disaster. And so I don't want that to happen to you. And this is a really tricky course, really hard to get right, especially on your first time. And you want to make sure that you can really soak in the experience, soak in the energy of the other runners and soak in the energy of the crowds. And in order to do that, I believe you have to be conservative in your first Boston with the explicit goal of saving energy for those five miles so that you can crush the end and treat Boylston, that run on Boylston, like your mini victory lap of this experience. In order to do that, again, you have to be conservative. So I highly encourage you to be conservative on your first Boston or even one of your first few Bostons until you really understand and master the course. Even for me, I'm an experienced Boston runner and I will be conservative on this course because I've never, frankly, mastered it myself perfectly. So 
So be conservative, which generally, if I were to give you a rule of thumb on that, if you had a rough sense for what you could run on a flat course, I would add five to 10 minutes to that time for your target Boston time, 10 to 20 seconds per mile. Add that to what you think you could run on a flat day and then run that as your target time during the race with a focus on finishing as strongly as you can after 21. Again, after 21, all bets are off. You can close as hard as you want to. You can empty the tank at the end, but be conservative. Choose a target time that is conservative so that you truly can enjoy the overall experience. So that's a message to those Boston new newbies. Let's talk strategy for a second. So strategy, I break Boston generally into four sections. There's miles one through four, which is net downhill from from the beginning with that first mile being the steepest. I want you to start at least 20 seconds per mile slower than your target pace for that mile, even though it's downhill, which will feel like you're jogging. It'll, it should feel honestly like you are starting your long run. It should be that easy in that opening mile, but it should still be slower than your target marathon pace. And then work down from there to your target marathon pace over the first three to four miles, similar to how you would do in any other race. And then from four to 15, it's roughly flat. There's really no flat parts of Boston, but you do have more gentle rollers in that second section from four to 15. And that's where you can dial into a rhythm plus or minus five seconds per mile. That should be right around your target marathon pace. Hold that as smoothly, as comfortably as possible. Then from five to 21, that's where you get that downhill into Newton. And then the four climbs within Newton itself, finishing with heartbreak Hill during that section. You have to be conservative. You have to let the heels slow you down. You should be seeing times that are anywhere from 10 to 20 seconds slower per mile during that section so that you can properly manage your energy. Conserve your energy through the Newton Hills. Don't fight the climbs. Just let them slow you down. And then once you get to the top of heartbreak at 21, you'll see plenty of signs there and you'll see plenty of energy there. That's when you crest that hill You get some downhills through to 23 and 24, and then you can really progress to the finish from there. And after 21, all bets are off. I want you to close that final 8K like you can with with whatever energy you have left. And then if you do that, then Boylston will be your victory lap. So that's it. Four sections. But you have to be conservative through to 21. And then after 21, all bets are off. Go for it at the end. Okay, let's talk weather for Boston. Current forecast shows overcast with 30% chance of rain, 57 to 68 temperatures on that morning, which likely means with the later start, if that forecast holds, that temperatures will probably be in the low 60s for the start itself. Again, not optimal for marathoning. That means if we see and this forecast holds that you should adjust your time for weather by at least 10 seconds per mile so that you can have the energy that you need at the end. And so that might mean that if your 
doing your first Boston that you might adjust because of weather and because it's your first Boston, you might adjust by 20 seconds per mile in the first 21 miles so that you can have a strong experience at the end, given the course, given the weather. For those that are more experienced with Boston, I would highly encourage you to at least adjust by the 10 seconds per mile given this weather. And what we would want to see is the temperatures, again, to be under 55, 55 or under at the start in order to go back to a more normal race plan based on current fitness. And unfortunately, it's just not looking like that will happen based on the forecast, based on the days around it. But again, it could change, but that's what you want to look for. If the forecast holds, make adjustments. If the forecast adjusts down, which we'll all cross our fingers and toes that it does, then of course you can go back to a more normal target. So there you go. That's what we have for the upcoming races, London, Chicago, Boston, some practical considerations to think about. And I will finish with the phrase I started with is, and that's that I want you to start smart and finish strong. That should be the goal for your race, regardless of which one of these three you're tackling. And I'll be out there with you in Boston for those that are running it. I'm excited about that. And I'll be there in spirit for those in London and Chicago. I wish you all speedy races and good weather, fingers crossed, if things might shift around for some of these. But I'm hoping that no matter what happens, no matter the outcome, that you just enjoy this opportunity to get out there and race again in person in these races because that, regardless of the outcome, is the true gift. So don't lose sight of the fact that it's really, really special to have the opportunity to do this regardless of the time on the clock at the end. So enjoy it no matter what. And again, I will see you out there for those in Boston. All right, that's the end. We'll wrap this episode here, episode 252. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.